Listen now for the word of God. From the wilderness of Sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What should I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called that place Massah and Meribah because the people quarreled. And tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The reading from the New Testament is the familiar story of Jesus' conversation with a woman of Samaria at a well. And after they have been conversing for a few moments, He makes these astounding claims. Everyone who drinks this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. I never fail to have the same feeling uh, when we gather, just the feeling of how good it is to be together in this place with you. What a privilege it is to be able to speak to you in this way. And I know I'm speaking for Emily and Steve when I say that. You are such an intelligent and good-looking crowd. Maybe not the balcony, but... The rest of you, anyway. Uh, And uh, it is is indeed a privilege. The story that Emily shared with us is part of a long saga of the national story of Israel. You know, it began with the call of Abraham, but the decisive event was the Exodus. And so that was where their redemption took shape and, and really was launched. But now they're somewhere between redemption and the fulfillment of their hope. The fulfillment of the promise to have a land of their own. 
They're wandering between those two points. Today, the route they followed could not be reproduced. We don't have a map of exactly where they went. There's no archaeological evidence. There's over 22,000 square miles of desert out there, windblown sand and rock. The sands of time have long since erased all of the named places that we would read in the stories. And yet, for Israel, these places were really important. Moses struck the rock, and that place was remembered. It was named. It wasn't just any old place. In fact, it was given two names. Massah, meaning testing, and Meribah, quarreling. You know, as I read this, I was surprised that, you know, it wasn't named after the miracle. I mean, a great miracle occurred here. And yet it wasn't named Rock of Gushing Water. It was named Quarreling and Testing. Unlike so many of the places in the Holy Land that are venerated for their miracles or the the holiness of the place, this place was embedded in Israel's psyche more as a reminder of their mistakes, their failure. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were telling the story of my life, and, or if someone else were telling that story, and I don't know why they ever would, but if that story were to be told, I would want to leave out the most embarrassing moments and failures. I wouldn't want to include all of it. Like the time I was in seventh grade, and uh, I was taking Latin, and, you know, they have this citywide Latin competition every year. They have academic competitions. Well, I know I wasn't going to be in that. Um, They had sports competitions. They had all sorts of things. Well, the day that we were supposed to sign up to do what we wanted to do for this big citywide thing, I was sick. I was absent. And so they just assigned me something. And when I got back, you know what they assigned me? The costume contest. They said, please, Bill, just do it. We need need the points and you'll be great. Oh, sure. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And so it turned out that this costume was the costume of a Roman soldier. Now, what do Roman soldiers wear? Skirts. I was in seventh grade wearing a skirt. Are you getting the picture? And the skirt was handmade by this girl that I didn't really like, but she, I think, liked me, and I, she was excited. I had to go over to her house, and, and her mother and her kind of took all my measurements and made this thing and had to try it on, and it was just humiliating. But it wasn't even the beginning, because then the big day of the competition came. We go over to Wilson High School. We're having all these great contests, javelin throw and races and all kinds of stuff. It comes time for the costume contest, I'm backstage, I walk out on the stage in Wolfson's Auditorium, they pull the curtains back, I come out, and everybody bursts into laughter. See, now that's not a story that I'm going to want included in my memoir. I don't know why Israel wanted their embarrassing moments uh, recollected and written down as such an important part of their story. Why wouldn't they just stick with the miracles and the victories, the good kings? 
But there was this miracle. This miracle at the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Uh, and it couldn't have been just a little trickle of water that came out of it. It had to have been a gusher to be able to supply the needs of all of these people and all of their livestock. It had to have been a river of water. Anything less, less would have been insufficient. Now, that God cared for the Israelites was, at this point, still kind of a new idea to them. You see, up until now, God had focused on calling Moses and commissioning Moses. God had focused on working from a distance on behalf of Israel for the sake of his covenant with the ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was working at a distance. But now, as the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years, Israel comes to know God face-to-face, or at least more directly. They know God daily in the giving of bread and meat. They know God in the following day by day, night by night, by pillar of fire and by cloud. They know God that speaks to them now in the first person. I am Yahweh, your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord above all other gods. I am a jealous God. I am the Lord compassionate. So compassionate, in fact, that when the people complain about not having water after three days of travel, and by the way, who wouldn't complain? A pretty legitimate complaint. And like Steve's vision quest, we heard a lot of complaining about how he had to go without water and everything for two and a half days. So all these people are grumbling. But God did not reject them. In fact, God provided a gusher of what they needed. We know this isn't the first or the last time that the people that God's love, that God loves, puts God to the test. Puts God to the test. That means to demand that, that God show some proof, some unimpeachable evidence, hard science, tight logic, a miraculous sign, something to prove that you're real, that you're still in charge, that you still care. Israel was not alone in asking, is God in our midst or not? I mean, who among us has not asked that question? Has not, at some point in our life, put God to that kind of test? I know I have. For reasons unknown to us, not every situation has been met with an obvious, saving, miraculous sign. There are those Christians I know who go through life saying, I'm not going to buy car insurance. God will take care of me. I'm not going to avail myself of medical care. God will take care of me. God will 
is being put to the test. I remember uh, a couple uh, from many years ago whose name I will change. I'll call them Rick and Judy. Rick and Judy um, had three sons. Um, At one point, they were divorced, and uh, the sons were growing up. The oldest was 16, and one night I was working late at church, and I received a call that this oldest son had been killed in an accident. And, of course, both parents were absolutely devastated. And, uh, of course, at the funeral, it was just a massive turnout of, of children and adults. Uh, the grieving was very difficult for them. A few years later, I was not seeing much of Rick. He was, wasn't ever coming to church anymore. And so I called him up, we got together, and he said, Bill, I'm not going to ever come to church again. In fact, I'm not even going to pray again. Until God grants me this one sign. That's all I ask. I'm not asking for too much. I said, well, Rick, what's that sign that you were waiting for? He said, I want to see and hear my son again. Just one time. And then maybe I'll talk to God again. As far as I know, that sign has not been granted. I don't know if it ever will be. But it is true for for most of us that pain and disappointment can lead us to the conclusion or at least to ask the question, is God with us? Is God near us? Does God even care? Does God hear my cry? I think the woman at the well that Jesus met had come to the conclusion that God didn't care about her. She was not important enough. Her life was too much of a mess. She had gone through a series of relationships. She'd made a mess out of all of them. And yet here was this religious teacher in front of her, a Jew no less, saying, I have water to give you that you don't even understand. Offering to her a spring of life that could renew her and transform her. I think it's so interesting that in the Gospel of John, it says that she ran to her town and told the whole town not about this wonderful promise of water, But she said, come and see this man who has told me all the things I've ever done. It's like all the embarrassing moments, all the failures, all the the messed up decisions that I've ever made. He knows it all. And yet still, he is there offering a relationship. It's kind of like that in Exodus. The stories not only focus on the moments of Israel's obedience, and there certainly are those moments. They, they do follow around for 40 years on a journey that should have taken them a couple of weeks, but they were obedient, best they knew how to be. 
And they did experience miraculous provision day after day. But they also included their mistakes, their inadequate theology, their underestimations of God, their bad decisions. In fact, it seems that um, even this place named after their failure rather than the miracle, Masa and Meribah, these would remind us that maybe miracles are not the only or even the best way to be sure of God's closeness to us. Maybe miracles are not the best proofs that God loves us and is really here with us. Maybe it's when we confess our mistakes, when we remember those times that we have been forgiven, when we think about what God has done for us to forgive us, when we see how our brokenness is being healed and we are being reconciled and learning together how to love each other. Maybe these are even better signs that God does indeed go with us. Such experiences of repentance and healing and reconciliation are no less revelatory than supernatural signs. So, like places in the Sinai Desert that were given names to remember the times in their lives when they were broken and weak, when God came through with forbearance and mercy, we can also remember the times in our lives when God has left an indelible mark on our consciousness with grace. These times, these are the times that are worth remembering and naming. Amen.